One of the funniest, most entertaining TV personalities of all time would have to be Julia Child. We can remember her from childhood because our moms would watch her cooking show. But none of our moms actually made any of her complicated recipes. And if they did, it was a disaster. People tuned in because she was fun and authentic and had a vibrant personality that was infectious. And who could forget those quotes? I love cooking with wine. Sometimes I even put it in the food. Don't you find it ironic that you were once a famous chef, known especially for your desserts, and now your ashes are in a cookie jar? Well, I hope they used plenty of butter. In our studio today, the French chef herself, the insatiable Julia Child, coming right up. Kristen Spangenberg and welcome to Over My Dead Body, the talk show that brings to life the most interesting people from our history and culture. There is so much more to the story of celebrity chef Julia Child than most people know. For example, she did not start cooking until age 32. She was six foot two and played college basketball for Smith College. She was literally so tall they changed the rules of the game. She also once said about her marriage, if my husband and I could have the kitchen and the bedroom, that would be all we need. <laughs> Julia Child changed the way America cooks and thinks about food. So let's meet the woman responsible for this phenomenon. Hello, Mrs. Child, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Kristen. Glad to be here and call me Julia. Okay, Julia. First off, I'm curious to know, why did you wait so long to become a chef? I wish I'd started cooking at 14, but that wasn't in the cards. Girls of my class didn't cook. They were servants to do that. And they certainly didn't do it professionally. Back then, middle-class women didn't have careers. You were expected to marry and have kids and be a nice mother. You didn't go out and do anything. That sucks. What sucks? It's colloquial for bad. Anyway, I never gave much thought to food. I made do with frozen meals. So at 32, after I met my husband, Paul, I had to learn to cook to seduce him with my kitchen prowess. Didn't you have an accident in the beginning? I exploded a duck and set the oven on fire. <laughs> no kidding. How did that happen? I was drunk as hell and my saute was 100 proof alcohol. What did you do? Got it on with the hubby, right on the kitchen counter. Okay, so you two spent a lot of time in the kitchen. For us, the kitchen was the soul of our house. As you mentioned earlier, if we could just have the kitchen and the bedroom, that would have been all we needed. But the kitchen table sufficed in a pinch. You married late in life. Why? Being six foot two with a horse face made finding a husband not easy. 
After I graduated from Smith College, I ended up in New York, sharing an apartment with two friends, writing ad copy. I couldn't get a date if I paid for it, so I thought, hell, I'll join the army. Plenty of men there. What happened? Those imbeciles said I was too tall. Is this the point in your life where you became a spy? <laughs> spy? That's rich. I volunteered my services to the Office of Strategic Services, where I was a file clerk and typist. And then I developed shark repellent used on underwood explosives during World War II. How did that come about? I was bored being a clerk. As a research assistant in the Secret Intelligence Division, I once typed 10,000 names on white note cards to keep track of officers. I was bored stiff and still hadn't been laid. The guys on the repellent team were cute and smart, so I signed up. The repellent that you cooked up was effective, correct? Cooked up? <laughs> I like that, yes. It's, it's still being used today by NASA to protect space capsules after they land in the ocean. It was actually the first thing I ever cooked. Didn't you meet your husband in the OSS? Yes, ma'am. We met in China and eventually moved to Paris for his work. He took me to Le Corone restaurant and the sex we had after was Ooh, la la. That started my love affair with French food. Paul loved highly spiced and garlicky dishes, and I'm never one to do things by half measures. So if the State Department had sent Paul to Rome instead of Paris, you would have taught us spaghetti instead of souffles? Hell yes, but alas, it was French that won out. I enrolled in a professional cooking school, the Cordon Bleu and then later studied privately with Max Bungard and other master chefs. After that, I started a school of my own. Boy, you certainly developed a passion for food. It was really about sex. If Paul thought the food was delicious, then I'd get banged all night. <laughs> but to answer your question, I had finally found a real and satisfying profession which kept me busy well into the year 2000. You then set about writing a book that would make French cooking seem easy. In 1961, in one of the biggest blunders in publishing history, Houghton Mifflin rejected my book as too formidable. It was a huge blow to me and Paul, because by that time, Paul had left the State Department and we moved into our new house in Massachusetts with little money. I'd been working on mastering the art of French cooking for nine years. How did you survive? I did food porn, worked wonders on cucumbers. In truth, I figured if I could give two cooking lessons a week at about 40 bucks a shot, that would bring in a tidy sum. Paul really went to work on your kitchen. Yes, he installed a used professional garland stove and arranged my knives on magnetic strips so I could grab one without fishing through a drawer. You had a thing for knives. It's very important that you train yourself with your knives. Once you've used it and washed it, you put it away. Kind of Freudian, if you think about You're it. You're an admitted knife freak. I had dozens, most of them well used. But there's one I called my fright knife. I love great big things. Ask Paul. You would wave it around and slam the cutting board with it. 
doing television, you want to do amusing things, something fun and unusual. I think also on the television, you want to do things loud. People love the whamming noises. It was that instinct that got you on air in the first place. Yes, I was invited to appear on a book review show called I've Been Reading. I read that you showed up at the studio with a hot plate, some eggs, and a giant whisk. Yep, just like a stripper going to a hotel. I am always prepared. I whipped up an omelette for the host who was shocked. The audience begged for more, and over the next three years, the station produced almost 200 shows, turning you into a national icon. Of course, not bad for a nymphomaniac with size 12 feet. <laughs> so maybe now is a good time for a little backstory. Can you tell us a little bit about your humble beginnings? On August 15, 1912, I was born as Julia Carolyn McWilliams in Pasadena, California. My father was John Williams, Jr., a Princeton University graduate and prominent land manager. My mother was Julia Carolyn Weston, a paper company heiress. My grandfather was Brian Curtis Weston, a lieutenant governor of Massachusetts. I was the eldest of three children. My brother was John McWilliams III, and my sister was Dorothy Cousins. That's a huge Republican family. True. I was a rich Republican until I moved to New York and had to live off $18 a week. Then I became a Democrat. You attended polytechnic school from fourth to ninth grade. Then in high school, you were sent to the Catherine Branson School in Ross, California, which was at the time a boarding school. I got to play tennis, golf, and basketball there. It was fun, but the other girls were mean. That's where Horseface came in. You then attended Smith College, where you graduated in 1934 with a major in history and writing. I was officially a nerd. You once described a meal of oysters, saumonier, and fine wine as an opening up of the soul and spirit. And my legs. <laughs> Oysters are an aphrodisiac, okay. you know. Following the success of your book, you wrote magazine articles and had a regular column for the Boston Globe. Would you say you enjoy writing as much as cooking? Not really. You can't eat paper. However, I do like coming up with some zinger quotes. Care to share any with our viewers? Sure. Here's a couple of them. A party without a cake is just a meeting. <laughs> <laughs> Here's another. It's so beautifully arranged on the plate. You know someone's fingers have been all over it. <laughs> yeah, the only time to eat diet food is when you're waiting for the steak to cook. <laughs> I love those. Would you mind taking some calls from our viewers? Of course not. How exciting. This is Mr. Kane from Philadelphia. Mrs. Child, is it true that people have often mistaken you for a man? He hung up before I could tell him to eat me. Let's give this another try. We have Mrs. Silvagi from Wilmington, Delaware on the line. Go ahead. So Mrs. Child, how would you best describe yourself? I'm like Bigfoot with a kitchen knife. And also, if you were a food, what would you be? I love this color. Well, I would have to say it varies day to day. Some days I feel like a rump roast, other days like a red snapper or baby oyster. Yesterday, I woke up feeling like a cannoli. I get that way at times. Today I feel like ground chuck. 
I read that the French chef was immediately successful, ran nationally for 10 years, and won Peabody and Emmy Awards, including the first Emmy Award for an educational program. I'm blushing. And your show was the first to be captioned for the deaf, but because of the technology in the 1960s, the show was unedited, causing your screw-ups and blunders to appear in the final version. Yep, plus I was always drunk by the end of the show. It's what the audience liked about you. <laughs> that I was a drunk horse face. No, you were authentic, believable. You were a bit controversial though. Your use of ingredients like butter and cream has been questioned by food critics and modern day nutritionists. But they have their place in the world. You ever see the movie Last Tango in Paris? Yes. I rest my case. Brando got the idea from me. Anyway, focusing too much on nutrition takes the pleasure from enjoying food. Everybody was overreacting. If fear of food continues, it will be the death of gastronomy in the United States. Fortunately, the French don't suffer from the same hysteria we do. We should enjoy food and have fun. It's one of the simplest and nicest pleasures in life. Sex and food until you die. Your kitchen, designed by your husband, was the setting for three of your television shows. It's now on display at the Smithsonian. What do you think about that? What do they cook there? Nothing. It's a museum. Oh, such a waste. Have you been there? Not yet. Your husband, Paul Child, who was 10 years older than you, died in 1994 after living in a nursing home for five years following a series of strokes. Do you think it was all that butter and cream? I hope not. Looking back, what was the most attractive quality about your husband? Paul wasn't just my husband. He was my best friend. We were always together. We enjoyed each other immensely. But I have to say his best quality was that he was easy to talk to. We had wonderful conversations. Paul really had a way with words. I called him my cunning linguist. That's so sweet. <laughs> After your death on August 13th, 2004, just two days before your 92nd birthday, it was reported that your last meal was French onion soup. Best bowl of soup I ever had. What's up with you and death? You've been the subject of numerous parodies on television and radio programs and skits on stage. Most famously in a 1978 Saturday Night Live sketch by Dan Aykroyd, who, as Julia Child, cut his finger and eventually died while yelling out, Save the liver! I love that sketch so much I showed it to all my friends at parties. Dan Aykroyd is the shit! In fact, you were parodied quite a bit over the years. First on The Electric Company, then on The Cosby Show, then John Candy portrayed you in a sketch for Second City, where you fought Mr. Rogers in a boxing match. Even RuPaul's Drag Race featured you on an episode. How did you feel about all that? My favorite was still Dan Aykroyd. Meryl Streep played you in a movie, Julie and Julia. She was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Actress. Who is that? A famous actress? Does she have a horse face? That's a matter of opinion. I'll take that as a yes. When did the movie come out? In 2009, five years after your death. Convenient. Guess they didn't want to stir the pot. God, I'm funny. Would you mind taking one more call? Of course not. I'm having a blast. We have Karen from Sebastian, Florida on the line. Go ahead. Hi, Mrs. Child. 
I really miss you and your show. Things haven't been the same without you. I appreciate that, Karen. I'm just wondering, what are the best foods for sex? Well, that depends. There are two food groups. One to eat, and one to smear all over your partner and eat. I see. The type to get you physically ready would be oysters, caviar, and of course, champagne. But a few drinks of almost anything alcoholic will do the trick. As for what to put on your partner, stick with creme brulee. You can lick that off of most anything and it'll taste great. What if you don't like sweets? Bite your tongue. Well, you can pretty much eat anything with some fava beans and a good Chianti. Isn't escargot an aphrodisiac? Oh, for many people, yes. But some folks are just turned off by snails. Hey, would you like to hear my snail joke? Of course. A man is getting ready to go to work one morning where there's a knock at his door. He opens it and no one is there. A few minutes later, there's another knock. And again, the man opens the door and nobody's there. But this time he looks down and sees a big, ugly snail on the front porch. So he stoops down and picks it up and chucks it as far as he can. Okay, Kristen, are you ready for the punchline? I'm all ears. Okay, so three years later, there's another knock at the door. The man opens it, and there on the porch is the snail who says, Hey, what the hell did you do that for? <laughs> Very funny. I hope he didn't eat it. <laughs> Actually, there's only one thing more disgusting than snails, and that's kale. It's like eating a tree. It's popular these days. Even worse than the taste of kale is the smell of a kale fart. <laughs> if you could live your life again, would you do anything differently? Just one. I would buy stock in a kale farm. My fiance Brandon wants to know the most successful thing you made on your show and the biggest flop. <laughs> Tell Brandon they were the same item. It was a layer cake that fell apart. I scooped up a huge dollop of frosting and covered it all up. Voila! Parfait! Hey, I see you have a bunch of my roses. Of course. We wanted to show our viewers these Julia Child roses. How did you feel about having a rose named after you? A very kind man named Tom Caroth bred this particular golden Floribunda rose and asked if it could bear my name. I took one look at it and agreed. In the UK, it's known as the absolutely fabulous rose. As it should be. It's also called a golden butter rose, and you know how much I love butter. It also only requires minimal pruning. If only I was so lucky. <laughs> They're beautiful. Are you working on anything now? A new cookbook, perhaps? I'm actually working on a spy novel. Really? What's it about? It's called The Sweet Tooth Detective. It features a pastry chef named Meredith who solves cold case crimes from her French bakery, along with her daughter, Fiona, who's a sex therapist. I'll keep an eye out for it. <laughs> this has been a lot of fun, Julia. Do you have any final thoughts or advice for our viewers? I always say, if it feels good, do it. If it tastes good, eat it. And sometimes, if you get lucky, those are the same thing. That's it for today. I'm Kristen Spangenberg, and we'll see you again soon on the next episode of Over My Dead Body. We hope you enjoyed the seventh episode of Over My Dead Body. 
The entire TV series is now available as a podcast in addition to streaming on Amazon Prime. Aside from Julia Child, we've interviewed Robert Kardashian, Nostradamus, Steve Jobs, Mae West, Richard Nixon, and Tupac Shakur. Upcoming guests include me, Walter Cronkite, as well as Mark Twain, Howard Cosell, Sigmund Freud, Jimmy Stewart, and Albert Einstein. All told, we plan to produce 60 episodes, and perhaps as many as 300 of them. One thing's for certain, there's no shortage of interesting guests, and more seem to arrive every day. The executive producer of this episode is Stephen Kunis. The show was directed by Tim Milloway, and our assistant director was Brandon Dennison. Over My Dead Body was created and written by Stephen Kunis. And this episode was hosted by Kristen Spangenberg. Julia Child was portrayed by Tricia Briot, a woman of many talents and voices. The telephone callers were played by Shakna Kunis, Frank Gerard, and Stacy Stores. Sound recording was provided by Tim Milloway, and the editing was done by Dan Gross and Syed Muhammad. The catchy theme music, both at the beginning and end of the show, was composed and performed by Marty Criswanis. Very special thanks go to Norman Lear for his encouragement in the development of this show, and to the late, great Johnny Carson for suggesting that a talk show with a fantasy guest list would be a wonderful idea. Finally, the staff at Philly Cam in Philadelphia provided much-needed assistance required to turn our TV series into a podcast, which will allow us to educate and entertain even more people.